When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alright everybody, welcome back in to a brand new episode of Dimming the Gaslight. My name is Mac and thanks for coming in for the newest episode. So um, last week I told you a little bit about the case management conference that I had regarding my necks and how the judge allowed me to take the kids to a Matchbox 20 concert. I just want to let you guys know it was absolutely unbelievable so much fun i mentioned last episode it's my absolute favorite band and the kids had an amazing time i took so many videos of them dancing and jumping up and down and singing every word to every song that they know and it was absolutely awesome and it was so much fun and uh yeah my son told me it was the best night of his life and then the next morning i sent him all of the messages you know all the videos and stuff of the concert and he goes oh my god I loved it so much he goes when can we go again and so he was just so happy my kids were so happy with it and it was great um and uh so I wanted to tell you another thing so I had my overnight visit with the kids that weekend and uh you know I okay let me tell you just a quick backstory for the last uh, about a year ago I lost an AirTag. If you don't know what an Apple AirTag is, it's essentially a tracking device that helps you if you lose your keys or, you know, lose some sort of belonging. You could put this little quarter-sized thing on your devices or whatever you want so that you don't lose it. And about a year ago, I had one and I lost it. And, uh, you know, it's weird because it'll pop up on your screen if you're within the vicinity of somebody who has an air tag, it'll pop up on your screen and tell you that, you know, there's an air tag near you. And for the last six months, when I picked up my kids, I had an air tag pop up on my screen. And I always thought, oh, you know, it, maybe I dropped my air tag in my car, but my last car had broken down and I got a new car. And I thought maybe it was in a gym bag I used to have. And it was really odd. But the night before we went to the concert, I'm just sitting on the couch and all of a sudden it pops up on my phone. You have an air tag with you. And my eyes got real big and I thought, but I'm not moving. What the hell is going on? So you can go to the find my app, like find my iPhone on your phone and you can press play a sound. And I played a sound and when I hit the sound, it started ringing and it was in my apartment. 
And I go, what the hell is going on? So I go over to the kid's overnight backpack and I put my ear to the backpack and it's the backpack that's ringing. So I start taking the clothes out, going through it, and uh, I find sewn into the backpack. I thought maybe it was in some wet wipes for the kids or, or tissues or something. No, it was sewn into the backpack. So I'm feeling around on the you know outer lining of the backpack, and eventually my fingers graze over a little quarter-sized device, and I hit play sound again, and I put my fingers to this device, and I posted a, a video, I mean a picture of it on Instagram, and I held it between my index finger and my thumb. There was a tracker in the bag, so I waited until the kids went to sleep, and I texted Brittany Parisi, my lawyer out of New Jersey, uh, I need your permission to cut this out of the bag. And she said, yeah, absolutely. So I cut it out of the bag and I videoed myself cutting it out of the bag. And I sent it to Brittany and I said, this has been going off on my phone for the better part of six months, almost a year. And I never thought about it until I was in my apartment and I wasn't moving. And I said, how could it be tracking me? The next has had an air tag in the kid's overnight bag for the better part of six months. So the next day we went to the concert, all that kind of stuff. But the following day I filed a police report and um, I let them know that I have been tracked. Now, there's some of you that might be listening to this and you might be saying, oh, well, you know, I would put an air tag in my kid's bag. Or what if they're kidnapped and the kidnapper doesn't want, you know, somebody to know. So it's in the in the backpack. That's all well and good. And I completely think that's fair. But I will say it's really simple to just have. The next should have let me know, hey, by the way, there's a tracking device in the bag, okay? And she didn't. So, um, yeah, I, I've been dealing with that for the past week. Um, maybe more to come on that, hopefully. Um, but, yeah, it, it, other, than, other than that, you know, uh, Brittany Parisi and I are, are working on that motion that I discussed with you before. Um, one last little tidbit is that... Uh, I did a call with my kids yesterday and I've been texting my son since the concert and he hasn't responded to me and he let me know yesterday. I said, Hey, are you getting my text messages? And he goes, no. And I go, why not? And he goes, I deleted the app and I go, why? And you know how kids are. They go, I don't know. And I go, why? He goes, I don't know. And I go, can you give me a reason? He goes, I don't know. And it's clearly because his mom made him delete the app because me sending pictures and videos of how happy we were together doesn't really fit too well in her narrative of, uh, you know, calling DCP and P and all that kind of stuff. Um, but she's just hurting the kids. And that's what she does. She's a parental alienator and she hurts the kids. And I'm going to get it legally taken care of in front of the judge because she has no leg to stand on. So that's what's been going on with me, um, but I didn't want to do this episode about me because I have an absolute amazing guest on this podcast today, and uh, she just over the last couple of days had an article um, published in USA Today where she was like an expert interviewer, the interviewee, I guess, and the article is called, Is Your Teenager Narcissistic? Probably, but that's okay. Here's why. And this guest was recently interviewed for that article by USA Today. So I wanted to give her a big congratulations. Um, I'm so excited to have her now for the second time on this podcast. And I really think you guys are going to enjoy this. So check it out. All right, everybody. Welcome back into a brand new episode of Dimming the Gaslight. My name is Mac, and thanks for coming in for the newest episode. So 
I have brought back a guest here who I'm super fond of. Her name is Chelsea Brooke Cole. She's a former guest of mine. And the last time we did a podcast, we were talking about how to break trauma bonds and like how you can recover from narcissism. Um, but she is a psychotherapist and um, I just follow her her page on Instagram and stuff. And she's so poignant and so professional and so smart and all the things that she says. And Chelsea and I were talking about have I Chelsea asked me, have I ever done an episode about the different kinds of narcissism? And I don't know why, but <laughs> bring an expert on here to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, so let's get right into it. So for me, right, I I admit like I've kind of just. I know that my ex is a covert narcissist. I know that she has a public image. I know that she, there's certain things that she wants people to know about her. And I know there's certain things that people want wants to protect. She wants to seem like a great mother. She's kind of like a social media celebrity. She's a celebrity in her town. Um, but behind closed doors, she is an absolute nightmare um and you know like she this is another thing she can't keep many friends because when people figure out some of the tactics that she does you know all bets are off so i thought that would be a good place to start because my experience is coming from covert narcissism so can you go through you know your knowledge about covert narcissism and you know how how we can come to know that we're in a relationship with a covert narc mm-hmm yeah, I'm just sitting here shaking my head because I'm thinking of so many client stories and other th reasons I can relate to what you're sharing. So, yeah, and the whole female narcissism thing is a whole other topic we could get into because I think that's especially damaging for people. But so we're calling it covert narcissism. And if we're on social media, we're hearing like people talk about it. That is often what it's referred to in the literature. It's, you'll probably see it as vulnerable narcissism. So it's called covert narcissism victimized uh, or covert narcissists, they tend to have one of two presentations depending on what serves them best at the time. The victimized persona and what I call the nice guy or sweet girl persona. So from the victimized persona, they come across as sullen and withdrawn, uh, kind of down on their luck, almost depressed. And that's what a lot of people, even therapists, initially think is going on with vulnerable covert narcissists is that they're depressed because this is what they look like. But the difference is what looks like depression for covert vulnerable narcissists never gets better. So even though you treat them with therapy or medication, which is often how real depression is treated, it just doesn't get better with the covert narcissist. They, they often talk about themselves and portray themselves as having been taken advantage of, used, or even abused, like past situations where Life just didn't go their way and things have happened so unfairly to them. And that's what throws a lot of people off about vulnerable covert narcissists is because you think this person seems depressed and sad and withdrawn. Like, how can they be a narcissist? You know, you know, it's funny. So, um, you know, like as we go through as we go through these stories, I'm sure the listeners are going to be like, yes, this is what I experienced <laughs> over. This is what I experienced in terms of malignant. So like, as you're saying that, right, like the victimized narcissist. So I've told the story a few times on my podcast that I just, when I just had started dating my next and we were laying in bed together and she, you know, we would stay up till five o'clock in the morning and have these very open conversations. And she would tell me about how her ex-boyfriends beat her up. And in the middle of the night, she would pop up like, like those like zombies or like rigor mortis style. And she would say that she was having dreams about her exes beating her up. Wow her and I would hug her and I'd be like I would never do that to you and it was this way of 
her well so like my demeanor would be like i have to help you through that trauma and i have good guys exist yep yeah so that was the victim mode that my next was playing exactly yeah and that is their form of narcissistic supply like that's how they draw you in so grandiose narcissists present themselves as this you know, loud, charming, charismatic person, and you're kind of drawn in because they have this alluring presence. Covert, vulnerable narcissists are like the total opposite. They don't have this super grandiose, you know, persona, but they draw you in by gaining your sympathy and your pity and your attention. And then if you try to set any boundaries, though, or walk away and expect them to actually take your help and, and improve their life in the ways that they say that is not going well, then they will guilt you. Yeah. And look what you're not giving me. And look what, if you did this, I, I'm lacking in whatever department. And if you gave me more money, if you gave me more <laughs> and more chores or whatever it is, if you ace that proverbial mm-hmm. in front of you as the empaths or whatever you want to call us, like we think the more I give, the more I'll yeah. get. And it's, you know, I've heard it compared many times to like a sieve. You're just pouring in. Mm with holes and it just all falls through Mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't matter how much you pour in it's it's never going to be enough and they're they're quite entitled like that's how their entitlement shows through because they feel entitled to your time your resources your money your help your pity and there's no limit to that there's no point at which they kind of take up the baton and say you know i'm going to take responsibility for things and take accountability and i have to show up in my life they don't have that. They just, it feels very, well, vulnerable. I mean, that, that's kind of how they feel, very delicate. Like if you ask anything from them, they're just going to break. And that's what they want you to think. They actually use that. Absolutely. I mean, the light bulbs are going on over my head. <laughs> um, Any other characteristics when it comes to covert, like recognizing covert art? I always say you can really recognize that if you if you stop helping out of choice and you start helping out of obligation. Like when you feel pulled to help them as if it's no longer a choice or it's no longer a balance uh, then there's a problem yeah yeah i mean and again like so you're gonna tell these stories and i'm like the color commentary but like so in the last couple of weeks when i had discovered narcissism and i was like there's no amount of give that i could get Mm -mm. and i was like the the chores doer in the house and I was the cooker and I was the cleaner and I was the bathroom cleaner and the mopper and the vacuumer and I admit so like at the end of my relationship I started you know when I would cook dinner I always had a cleanup dinner before I was allowed to eat so what I did is I started sitting down eating my dinner mm. it's just and be like nah, I'm gonna eat my dinner because I knew right I knew in my head yeah so I would say you know what I just made this dinner I made it for the whole family. I'm going to sit down with you guys and eat and I'll clean the dishes afterward. And sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I got to go to the bathroom or sometimes I got to, because it was like, what the hell? I'm going to do it when I want to. Oh, and uh, it only took her three weeks to realize that I had caught onto the game and she placed false, uh, false. Yeah. So yeah, no, I can completely relate to the covert narcissism. And I, I think that's such a great place to start, but you also talked about, you just said the vulnerable narcissist. What are the difference between like a covert and a vulnerable? So it's really the same thing where it's basically a, a synonym. So you'll hear it talked about as a vulnerable, covert, or victimized narcissist. Most of the time on social media, what most people, the reason I think covert narcissism sticks more is because it makes more sense in people's minds. Because you, you, they don't come across as 
overtly grandiose. So covert narcissism makes more sense because covert means hidden. And that's how we perceive these kinds of narcissists. Like we don't initially think that they're narcissists because they look so depressed or down on their luck or just really nice and really sweet. But vulnerable narcissism, it's talked about more in the literature or it's described as, as vulnerable narcissism as opposed to covert narcissism. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Then what is the opposite of that? A grandiose narcissist? Yeah, if we go on the other end of the spectrum, we have the grandiose narcissist, and then even further down the the dark, sinister hole is the malignant narcissist, which we can talk about. Grandiose narcissist is what most people think of when they hear the term narcissist. You know, that's who we really think we're talking about. They tend to be charming and charismatic. They can come across those kind of arrogant and entitled. It, it doesn't. Ha- you don't have to work really hard to think. Oh, yeah, they could. They could be narcissistic. Um, but you might feel initially drawn in because they are quite charismatic and they can, can come across as quite nice and successful and productive because that's the image they want to portray to the world. So you can still think that they're they're nice, even though if they are a bit more arrogant. If you have a more sensitive, though, temperament, you might almost feel that a, that a, a grandiose narcissist is too much and you might be kind of mm, pushed back a bit like, oh, that, that person's a little bit extra for me. Uh, so you can have one of those two responses to grandiose narcissists. I think of when I think, of, and maybe this is just me, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I think of like the grandiose narcissist almost as like you're the Robin to their Batman, right? Like you're defunct <laughs> everything that they, they listen, they're the one who's usually pretty successful. They have a lot mm-hmm. of, they have recognition. They're like recognized in the public eye. And you're and you probably have this feeling of I'm lucky to be with them. Yes, exactly. Yep. You initially feel special, even chosen, because that's how a grandiose narcissist. Yeah, is ever heard a better usage of the word chosen? Yep. Yep. And that's how they pull you in because they're doing amazing things in life. Right. They're so successful and they're so productive. And oftentimes grandiose narcissists are pretty successful, unfortunately, and they do tend to have a lot of money. So it looks like they are their image. It's scary, though, because so the thing that I'm thinking as you say this is like, okay, like, for example, maybe, you know, the maybe a a woman who doesn't work is dependent on a man. He's the primary breadwinner in the family. And then when that woman, I feel so sorry for a lot of these women that reach out to me and they go, I have no control over like my financial capability or I don't even know how I can handle uh, I don't even know how I could pay a, a retainer for a lawyer because I don't even know about my finances right so like usually when I'm talking to those kind of victims it's because they're dealing with the grandiose narcissist who controls everything they're controlling. yeah they're yep yeah, they do have a lot of control over what happens in the family especially the money and the resources and there's that entitlement that comes out, right? Like it's not a partnership. It's not, it's fine if someone person is a breadwinner and one person stays at home. That can feel balanced and safe. But if you're with a grandiose narcissist or a toxic person, then they make you feel less than 
because you're not, quote, providing for the home. Like they'll throw out a lot of statements, well, I'm the one who makes the money around here, or you know, they act like what they're contributing is so much more. And it's like, you can only, you know, work full time because the woman's here taking care of the kids. I mean, but they just completely disregard what their spouse is doing for the family. Yeah. And they probably they probably tell you, like, who's going to love you when I'm done with you? Or like, what are you going to do without me? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you're in like zombie land. Like you're like the last person on Earth, because what do you what are you going to do? I have depended on this person. So then I know. Rap. So, um, you know, like when you said with a covert narcissist, like stop feeding into them. Is there any kind of uh, solution to dealing with a malignant narcissist? Or great. It, well, across the board, once you realize you're dealing with a narcissist, we have to start disengaging. I know Dr. Romney talks about this a lot. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the Dr. Romney and the deep technique she talks about, which is don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, and don't personalize. When you recognize that none of the healthy communication strategies work, it doesn't matter how you approach them. It doesn't matter how giving or patient or understanding you are. Things don't get better then like you said, you got to a point in your relationship where you had to say, okay, radical acceptance. I know what I'm dealing with. Realistic expectations is this is not going to change. So what can I do in this situation? All you could do was set boundaries and adjust your behavior to what felt healthier for you. You weren't doing anything, quote, wrong. You weren't being mean. But of course, narcissists make you feel that way as soon as you break their rules. You, you know, it's funny, like, so when we were little and we used to watch like scary cartoons or something, a cartoon, you know, there would be like a, a sign on the, at the, at the outside of a cartoon. It would say, abandon all hope here. And like, it was like, oh, shit, I got to abandon all hope. But the thing is, like, when it comes to a narcissist and you have that abandon all hope epiphany, that's when you're like, I can start to heal because there's no hope and there's mm-hmm. nothing that I could do differently that would give me a better result. Yeah, I find a lot of clients when they get to that point, either feel hopeful or hopeless and maybe both because it is it, it's a sinking feeling because you realize there's nothing that I can do to change this. But at the same time, that also allows you to recognize that this isn't your fault, because if you can't change it, then you're not causing the problem. Totally. Totally. Right. Yeah. If it, that's that's the good news, too. Right. Like if I could if so if there was something that i can do that it would fit mm-hmm. change what's the difference between like a grandiose and a malignant narcissist mm-hmm. so narcissism is a personality trait that exists on a spectrum at the higher end of this scale where we almost get into the psychopathy realm we have the malignant narcissist in fact a malignant narcissist is often described as the pinnacle of the dark triad the point at which narcissism psychopathy which is those antisocial behaviors and Machiavellianism, a singular focus on power, all collide. Well, initially, malignant narcissists can look like grandiose narcissists because they can be quite charming and charismatic, but there's a bit of a darker or sinister feel to them. They are highly exploitative and calculating and driven to power and control, and they don't really care how they achieve it. Yikes. And so there's all of these, all these narcissists that run on a spectrum, that one to me stands out as probably maybe the most violent. Is yes, that's true. Yep, of all the types, malignant narcissists because they're more sadistic. They they take pleasure in hurting you because they see your pain as proof of their power. Ooh, oh God, you just sent shivers up my spine. 
fuck. Yeah. Shit. Wow. Yeah, they're intense. Yeah. So, like, I mean, and, like, I don't, you know, it's funny because I've had self-aware narcissists on this podcast, and I'm not necessarily sure where they fall on the spectrum. Um, But those are the kind of people that, like, you know, like, so we always have reasons for not leaving and, like, dealing with a malignant Mm -hmm. narcissist, you know, you're probably in most fear for your safety. You would. There's a lot of safety planning that has to happen initially, especially in marriages, because malignant narcissists are the ones who will take you to court and fight for custody of the kids, not just because, not really because they want the kids, but because they know that doing so will hurt you. They they can become singularly focused on uh, being vindictive and you know paying you back for perceived wrongs. So it, it can be scary. Well, and like the Venn diagram, though, of narcissism, you know, I'm, I'm totally convinced that mind is a covert narcissism, but uh, narcissist. But like you just said, you know, like in that Venn diagram of narcissism, like that might be a characteristic of malignant narcissist. It's certainly of, you know, my next when it comes to court, because she's sitting there saying, I'm the victim. He abused the kids. He abused me. And they don't, you know, they have this victim complex, but they don't have anything to show for, you know, like they don't. Yeah. Yeah, and it's possible for someone to be a mix, you know, because narcissism is a personality trait that exists on a spectrum. So it's possible for someone to have a very, very nice persona. I mean, malignant narcissists can look very nice. It's within the intimate relationships that you're going to see that sinister, sadistic side come out. So, of course, you would experience that more. But like you said, other than that, she has a very, you know, charming presence. Yeah, like the 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 grandiose malignant narcissist the image that comes to my brain i don't know you ever see the, sh- the show mad men yes don draper yeah i've heard of that a lot yep don drapers of the world who are in power highly respected lots of money sleep around do whatever the fuck they want that to me watching that show i remember when that show ended and then like everybody's like mac you would love this show and i was like i fucking hated it because he has no redeemable qualities at the end when that show ends yeah qualities he's still a narcissist it's like the grinch right i don't care if your heart gets bigger and you have this epiphany you still did a lot of shit <laughs> you know? that's um, true they love to defend themselves you know like they love to like run their mouth and beat people up and say whatever the fuck they want and they love to like just say hey that's who i am and if you don't like it you know i can manipulate somebody else which falls into um you know taking a look at our notes it falls into the self-righteous narcissist right so like mm-hmm. this song is like Stands up for their behavior. Is that right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They are incredibly hypocritical. I mean, all narcissists are hypocritical because they have one standard for you and one standard for others. But self-righteous narcissists are particularly rigid and controlling and hyper-moralistic. They become almost obsessively fixated on perfecting a certain area of their life, whether that is taking care of their house or how neatly they fold their towels or a lot of times we'll see them in religious spaces or nonprofit organizations where they have this kind of us versus them language. Like, here's what we're doing in my group and we're the best. So you see that entitlement come out. And then there's those other people. And they're, yeah, incredibly self-righteous in that regard, hence the name. Cult leaders, right? Can be, yep. Well, I might almost classify a cult leader as a communal malignant narcissist which we can talk about. We'll get into the communal narcissist. There is definitely overlap, of course, in all of these types. And, but the self-righteous and communal narcissists do share that trait of being pretty active in 
religious spaces and nonprofit organizations for sure. I had a great guest on this podcast. Um, her name was Callie Sorensen, and Callie, you know, went deep dive into you know her experiences involved in being in a cult and things like that. And a lot of these self righteous narcissists use religion, like you said, you know, yeah. repeat as kind of like, well, how could I be evil? Because look how good I am behind the scenes, and like. It, that is kind of hard to ex accept, you know, like if I saw somebody donating time to like the Big Brother program or like mm -hmm. entered women's shelters and you're, you know, DCP and P who don't even get me goddamn started on DCP and P. These are the kind of people that like drive me crazy that like I read these articles that like, you know, some DCP and P worker who's supposed to be protecting kids is out there like facilitating things we should be talking yeah. about. Like I'm just saying the do-gooder type is... <laughs> areas maybe the you know grandiose or malignant i think they're particularly scary and particularly isolating for people because the the better the facade or the image the the more well liked and well respected they are in the community the more isolating it is for the people who are closest to the narcissist who are being treated with contempt and they're belittled and they're criticized and you know the, they get all the antagonistic behaviors while everyone else sees this you know charming wonderful person is doing so much good and like, like I was saying before, like the Venn diagram of narcissism, it's like the same thing as like a covert narcissist, because with a covert narcissist, like, you know, like they're usually relatively upstanding citizens and no one would expect this is coming from them. And it's the same thing as like, you know, somebody in like that philanthropy type role is like mm -hmm. you would expect that person to be this monster behind closed doors. And that's why when you come forward with your experience, you're not believed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine trying to convince family or friends that a self-righteous narcissist who's so active in religious spaces and perhaps holds a leadership position in a church or a religious organization or, or is just like a super spiritual person and they're always talking about you know, world hunger and these big, you know, global missions. How would a, a family member, a friend who only sees that version of the narcissist and you come and say they're really antagonistic and critical and they're, you know, being passive aggressive every day and like that they're not going to understand imagine too like as you're saying that i'm thinking like the, those people probably have people that come forward to vouch for them like but like this guy the god or like this person helped me get sober or like this person this and this person that and you're like wait the guy who like brought this guy to jesus is yep a, a you know narcissist like it's just mm -hmm. comprehension right? mm -hmm. Yeah, some of these narcissists, I know some of my clients, um, when they've had a narcissistic spouse, and let's say the spouse have gotten sober, maybe they had some kind of addiction, and then they almost, they gain supply now from, from sponsoring other people who are working through their addiction, and they become really active in those spaces, and they're so looked up to and revered for being a pioneer, you know, helping others and bringing them along, and you're like, no, they're still super narcissistic at home. They haven't changed. They're just using this now for more supply. And now they're kind of, it's like a pyramid. It's like a pyramid scheme. Now they're using yeah. you to demonstrate their narcissism. And like, they try and teach you, well, this is the way I'm doing it. And if you're not doing it, you know, maybe we should start going into communal narcissists. But like, you know, I, I use religion as a good example. It's like, they sit there and they go, well, if you're not doing it, you're not doing God's. Yeah. Let's talk about communal narcissists. So... 
they are nearly impossible to spot if you only see them from the outside because they do work tirelessly to present this self-sacrificing image. And they are humanitarians and philanthropists and do-gooders. But although these activities are good, they're not giving their time and effort and resources to these activities for the sake of doing good. They're doing it for the supply, the attention, validation, the praise they expect to receive because of it. And if they don't get that, they become very antagonistic and critical and irritable with those around them. So communal narcissists are only going to give if they have an audience who's going to praise them for it or they can document it and share it later. They're the ones who will give huge donations to you know, during a school auction so that they can appear rich and giving. Or they'll post these selfies of their Saturday morning, you know, volunteering at the soup kitchen in the animal shelter and their whole Facebook page looks like an advertisement for a nonprofit organization. So from the outside world, they look almost say-like because they work tirelessly to protect that image. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then, like I said, then you're trying to fall in line with whatever their mission is. And you're like, this is the way it works. And like, then you go and you do the work that they were probably going to hurt other people. Now you're hurting the people for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because you don't, and perhaps you are in those organizations because you really do want to do good, but the, yeah, the narcissist is only doing it for, for the supply, for how they're going to be seen. Like any documented, like I've never belonged to a cult or anything like that, but like any documentary or, you know, like through my own platform, like people I've talked to that have been involved in cults and stuff, it's like they're always coming into it, feeling very stagnant and despondent and bored and trying to find purpose in life and like the communal narcissist is the one that they always feel like is giving them that big purpose you know big picture Mm -hmm. they do it this way you know that the the communal narcissist is put on this pedestal that if that person does it that way they can reach that level Mm -hmm. exactly that's so active in in cult spaces and if you hear a lot of the stories about people who've been in cults or been in these certain relationships or gotten in these organizations, they often are looking for ways to give back. And the, the initial premise of them joining that organization or that leadership or, or that religion or whatever is for good reasons. And so that that's a really always a sad part of me about narcissism is that narcissists take what you mean for good and exploit it. Well, you know, I, whatever you say always jogs something in my brain. And there's, you know, like I'm not a super religious guy, but there's an old... Uh, Bible verse or whatever it says, what is it? No weapon formed against us shall prosper, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever they do, once you get out of that situation, like that's when you can break the cycle. So did we cover everything? We went from the covert to the malignant to the uh, grandiose. We covered the self-righteous. We covered the communal. The only one we haven't talked about is neglectful narcissist. Oh, okay. Let's talk about the neglectful. Well, they're all neglectful though, aren't they? Like- <laughs> They all have a hint of neglecting you for sure. They will, they will all engage in those withholding behaviors, emotionally neglecting you. I'd like to touch on neglectful narcissists because it is not talked about enough. And a lot of people who have been with neglectful narcissists don't feel like most of the literature out there that's talked about resonates with them because neglectful narcissists of all the types have the most understated love bombing phase. Oftentimes, there's not this intent, intense, attraction or connection a lot of times you end up with neglectful narcissists because of practical reasons you're getting older and you want to get married or you've just known this person or you move to a new city and you happen to 
you know, be looking for connections and a neglectful narcissist just found you at that time. They're really good at coming into your world when you have some kind of transition or you're vulnerable to it. And so they don't have to do a lot to convince you to be with them because it just, it makes sense at the time. Yes, my God, yes. And like, you know, another story that I shared, like, um, like probably I think it was the second episode of this podcast ever. Like when I started telling my story, I was telling this story about like I was in a you know, I had a really rough childhood. And by the time I hit my mid 20s, like like you said, I was in this transitionary period where I was about self-improvement. I was helping people. They were helping me. And my next kind of lashed onto that. And like when I would go and I would like be trying to help people, she would like pretend that she was like involved in it. And like I was like, mm. A, because I want everybody to be included in this. Um, but when it comes to that neglectful narcissist, narcissist, like you said, in the beginning, they can't completely neglect you because, you know, you have nothing to chase after. It's like a drug addict. Like, you're not going to want to get high all the time if you never got high to begin with. So, like, with a mm-hmm. they don't show you that high. You have nothing to chase for the next weeks, months, years down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's usually not of an of a lot of intense connection. It just makes sense, or they it's just a very practical reason that you end up with them. But then they have all the other narcissistic traits. They're just not as evident. Whereas a grandiose narcissist feels entitled to demand their way, and neglectful narcissist feels entitled to ignore you. And they're gonna. I mean, like we said, there's a lot of overlaps, but they keep telling you if you do X Y Z, you will get this, and then. You did that, but you forgot, like, you know, if you clean the house, you will get X, Y, Z, but you forgot to drive the kids to school. So you're not getting what, like, whatever, we hold it against you. And that's what we were saying is like, there's, there's certainly comorbidities across all of these, you know, all across the entire spectrum. Um, I think the victim complex is a big overlap. Um, Mm -hmm. The baiting, like we just said, like, kind of like that. Uh, the victim complex is certainly the bigger thing, but the baiting, you know, getting you to chase whatever high they initially had. What are some other comorbidities that kind of fall all across? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we look at narcissism in general terms, they're all going to be quite grandiose, although we talked about that can look differently depending on which type of narcissist. They all tend to be quite superficial. They focus on what things look like, being charming, charismatic, or coming across as quite nice or you know very put together in this one particular area and their relationships tend to be pretty superficial so they care about what you have what you look like what you do how they can benefit from you they don't care about you as a person they're also very entitled they believe they deserve special treatment not because they've done anything simply because they exist that's also why they think the rules don't apply to them like the rules apply to you but they're always the exception because they should be given special treatment Move that goalpost because when the rules do start to apply to them, then hold on because this happened and I get this grace, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They're always going to be the exception. And as soon as you try to give their own rules back to them, like, hey, you said this, that's where it turns into gaslighting because they don't admit that they have these rules and these expectations. Now they turn it around and say, you're crazy. Why would you, you know, ask that of me? I can't believe you're talking to me like this. They make it now that you are being cruel to them in some ways. Well, the thing is, too, is like, I feel like a general underlying thing when it comes to narcissism is like, they don't take accountability for their Mm -hmm. behavior. And then what it's basically this thought process that they have is like, they're not going to change. 
So if you're not with them, you're against them. 100%. Yes. That that all or nothing, right or wrong, black and white thinking. They don't have the capacity or the space to allow you to have your own thoughts and feelings, your own perspective. Because if they did, then that means you're equal. Like They're not extra special. If your thoughts and feelings and perceptions of reality are just as valid as theirs then they're not as grandiose and special as they want to think they are. Yeah. And you know what's funny? And, you know, not to toot my own horn, right? But, like, somebody along the line, I don't even know who it was, but, like, they told me, like, you're not that special. And I was like, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to and cry. Like, oh, I'm not that special. But it's like, yeah, no, like, I'm not that important. And I could just do whatever I do. And it doesn't really have that big of an effect on the world because I don't control everything. It's not up to me. Yeah. Yeah. Feel, act, do look however they want and it's not up to mac to decide yep yep agree yeah a narcissist makes everything uh, everything about them though so everything has to do with you're either 100 you know building them up and, and feeding that narcissistic supply or you're against them and this is also why if you ever bring up any issues to a narcissist if you try to address their concerns or their in- or your concerns or their inconsistencies or their lies or manipulation then they say that you are the problem. Like if you have a problem with a narcissist, then they're saying that the problem is that you're making it a problem. Yeah, right, exactly. I don't know why you're making such a big deal of this. I can't tell you how many times, like, why are you so mad? Or like, why are you bringing up the past? Because I'm showing you better. I'm showing yeah. you've done this whole time. And they're, here's another thing, and maybe this is an underlying thing, but they're incapable of self-improvement. I've never seen my next read a book I've never seen, I've never seen her exercise. I've never seen her do anything to ever better herself because she thinks she craps roses. Like she thinks she's the nice bread. Yeah. They're incapable of self-improvement. Yeah. And that is a thought I was just thinking is that narcissists don't self-reflect. They project. They don't take, you know, the feedback that you're giving them and think, Ooh, you know, did I say that? You know, was could they have taken that the wrong way? They don't take anything and actually use it to improve. They immediately, you know, push it back to you and say, "This is your fault. This is your problem." So yeah, they don't they don't have that capacity or willingness to engage in productive self reflection, which is why it doesn't matter what proof you bring a narcissist, what conversations you try to have with them. Like a lot of people get caught in this. Well, once we're on the same page, it's just a misunderstanding. At first, that's what we think. Like we're just not we're just not communicating. They or they genuinely don't remember the conversation we had. So let me just bring some proof and I'll show them the text message where we talked about this or where we agreed on this time or where this was discussed and then we'll finally be able to get somewhere. And that's when you're hit with that rude awakening that it doesn't matter what you do, what proof you bring, what evidence you have, a narcissist always has to be right. You know, and I want to put you on the spot, but like they're all like self, they're all the the Darvo thing. And I, I don't, yeah. wanna, excuse me, because I'm drawing a blank. It's like deny, you know, attack. Yeah. Deny, attack, role reversal, victim offender. The Darvo thing. And like mm-hmm. immediate guard wall up. And yeah. I, I, I didn't do that. You're making it a bigger deal out of than it is, or that never happened. And what, I chew, oh my god, I just got so angry. Common phrase my next used to use is what actually happened was. Mm. Honestly, what actually happened. 
So if I say, you know, you were talking, you know, I found text messages in your phone to another guy, what actually happened, mm. you know, we were talking about a work function or something. What actually happened was, so they mm. take, deny it, reverse it, and throw it at you. And you're mm -hmm. That's just something I was thinking as, as you were talking, is that when someone consistently plays the victim, it's really hard to recognize that you're being victimized because they're already in that role. And I think that's what's so off-putting and disorienting for people and why we as survivors end up sometimes carrying some guilt and shame. Like, man, what else could I do or how can I fix this? Because the narcissist already has the victim role on lockdown. Like, they are always the one who you are against. And so when they're in that victim role, you think, well, I guess it's, I guess I need to do something different. I guess it's me because if I, they're telling me if I could just approach them a different way or not be so sensitive or critical or rude or whatever it is that they're, you know, accusing you of, then things would get better. I think a lot of the times I thought to myself, if I concede and back down a little bit, they, and they don't bet. No. You know? So like, that's the thing is like, what can we do? Like, because they all have these common characteristics. And I said, I know we said, abandon all hope and i know that sounds kind of dark but it's the truth abandon all hope because you when you abandon all hope and focus on you you can get better stop feeding it you know like stop doing the things that they want you to do sending them money and things like that what are some of the things that victims of narcissistic abuse can do across the spectrum of different characteristics of narcissism what can we do to stop taking the I'll tell you, in my personal journey, when I saw the most growth was when I got to a point of radical acceptance, when I realized that I would end up sacrificing my whole life for someone if I didn't stop looking at potential instead of reality. So one of the first things we have to do is see what is happening and accept that this is what it is. There is no amount that you can give or no amount of understanding you can provide or you can talk with them through and that they're going to get it and they're going to change. Just full stop, this is all I can do. This is all that's in my control. My thoughts, my feelings, my reactions. Nothing I do can make this person improve or want to improve or want to change. That's one of the first steps. And then something else I talk about, especially in my book, I will have a whole chapter on boundaries and all that. But I encourage people to do something called silent boundaries. And these are the boundaries that you're setting that no one else even necessarily knows you're setting. This is when you start taking your power back of your mind and your thoughts and your feelings, because that's often what is you know, slowly eroded in these relationships is you don't even know your own thoughts and feelings or you don't feel like you have a right to your own thoughts and feelings. So silent boundaries is when a narcissist is talking and you're disengaging, you know, you're not engaging or explaining or personalizing anymore, you have more space to think to yourself, actually, I don't think that or this is how I feel. This is what's true. This is what happened. And because you're not engaging with them, you're not getting caught up in trying to rationalize with an irrational person. You are able to sit back and reflect more and start to feel more in control of your mind and take back your mental real estate. Yeah. So, so like while you're saying that, I'm thinking like you hear a lot of times when you're recovering from narcissism is like people say, listen, just be yourself. And we're like, what the fuck does that mean? Be yourself. I might some yeah. But really what it comes down to is like, for me anyways, like I noticed that once I get out of narcissistic abuse, so like I'm still going through it, but once I get out of the actual, you know, subjective situation, 
I realized that like, you know, like if I said something or if I did something, it would always get turned around on me. And I realized that I'm not responsible for what people hear mm -hmm. or what I say. And like somebody, it doesn't mean that they're a narcissist, but somebody can blow a gasket because they got mad at something I said. And it's just like, well, I know what I said. I know I didn't, you know, I didn't had to deliver that as gently as I could. And I didn't have any malintent. I'm just expressing myself. And if people don't allow you to express yourself, then what do you got as a person? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That goes back to that. I think I posted about this recently is we have to have a mantra in mind to help with our healing. Mine has been, I know what I know. And not just for the narcissist, but for the enablers I run into, for the flying monkeys that are still going around in my circles, smear campaigning me, saying things that are not true, people that I once thought were friends who haven't reached out for me for the truth, but they've talked to the narcissist and they've bought that reality. I mean, what can I do? What do we do? Go around and try to explain our story to every single person. Sometimes you definitely feel like you need to, but when you know the truth, it's like, I don't have anything to prove. So I, I know what I know. Like, why would you want those people in your life anyway? I, I, I said about mantras. I have a couple. I mean, you, in your brain, <laughs> uh, I know my truth. You are the yeah. one. Or did I know my truth? I've talked about that many times on this podcast. And my kids say it. And I play that game with my kids all the time. We know I know my truth. Um, another mantra I've had is, I'm going to see a victory. It's, it's like a Christian mm -hmm music but i know i'm gonna see a victory down the down the road and just like i said like you, you know i know but another one of my mantras is i'm responsible for what i do not mm -hmm. right and like i i can't control anybody i can't control their behavior and you know it's like kind of like helped me in like enabling you know people or like realizing that like because a lot of people reach out to me and it's like oh the only thing i can do is give you my experience and what i went through and how i got mm -hmm. I can't be responsible for other people's healing either, you know? Mm -hmm. Hard thing to to go through. But um, yeah, having a mantra in life is it's something to live by for sure. It's so necessary when you your sense of self and your sense of self-trust has been eroded. It takes time. And we do have to be more intentional to recognize that our thoughts and feelings are our own because narcissists make us feel like they're not, that they own those two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, when it comes to all of these different spectrums of narcissism, I think we've covered like how to identify them, how to stop feeding into it, how to like move on and like kind of like internalize your own healing. Is there any like final words that you would give to people when it comes to moving past narcissism or, or, or concentrating on yourself, concentrating on your healing and ultimately like being able to look back at the wreckage behind you and going, yo, I made it. I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any like thoughts about that? What I see a lot of survivors doing is looking at where they want to be so they never look at how far they've come. And that's something that makes a lot of people get stuck or get discouraged. Like they have this idea in their mind, this idealized version of what a healed me looks like. A healed me doesn't have triggers. A healed me will be at this point at this time. And if I'm not there, then you know, I'm not healing right or I'm not doing enough. And that just continues that the abuse that you went through from the narcissist of you're never, yeah, you're never doing enough and, and you're never good enough. So what I really encourage people to do is look at what they are doing and look at how you're showing up for yourself and look at how much resilience and self-reliance you have already shown 
by surviving this relationship and by still healing. Like the narcissist isn't doing that. And they're not making you listen to these podcasts and read these books and look at these social media pages on narcissistic abuse. Like you're doing that. That's who you are. And giving yourself credit for what you are and have done. I feel like, you know, like that's perfectly worded. And I feel like a lot of times like we go through certain situations like I can remember the first time I found out that my next was in a new relationship and like falling to pieces and seeing her with a new guy. And like there's, you know, like I can repeat that melancholy sadness every time. Mm-hmm. I. But I think part of healing, too, is like you get these tools, these proverbial tools that allow you to cope with things and learn from like given situations that you can say, oh, well, you know, I, I fell to pieces last time because I saw her with a new guy or something. But now I can sit back and go. Well, that guy screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how bad he had. So you have to like kind of like create these mental, this mental toolbox on how to handle all these new things that are going to, a healed version of me is not okay with what happened. A healed version of me knows how to navigate it now that I'm going forward. Exactly. It's a change in how you relate to yourself. I think a lot of people think of healing as I'm going to get to a point where I don't have these triggers or I don't have these memories or I don't experience these difficulties. And it's really more of how you relate to yourself when you do have triggers. It's it's not not having them anymore. And I I think I've talked about this, like triggers validate your reality. They they mean that what you went through is real. That's what you need to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay. Like don't bring so much judgment to your triggers instead have compassion for them and recognize why you have them absolutely absolutely well chelsea we're coming to the end of the hour um i'd like for you to plug some of the stuff that you have you mentioned your book uh where can people find your book what's it called all that kind of stuff yep you can google it basically wherever books are sold it's called if only i'd known how to outsmart narcissists at guilt-free boundaries and create unshakable self-worth i tried to distill my therapy and coaching practice into book form So that even if you can't access therapy or you don't have someone who specializes in that in your area, you can still get this book. It really takes, you know, you through three parts. Part one is on the inner workings of a narcissist. What does it mean in all its forms? I do a deep dive on not just six types, but what does it look like to be love bombed by the six types? Because that can be very different. The second part is healing attachment wounds, trauma bonds, setting boundaries. And the third part is what are the healing... Uh, mindset strategies you need to make. Why do people get get stuck? And what are post-traumatic growth strategies and how can you implement them? So I tried to cover everything as much as I can in one book. Very cool. So everybody pick that up. And uh, where can people find you on socials? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok at Chelsea Brooke Cole. And if you want my free bi-monthly newsletter where I send that out for understanding and healing from narcissistic abuse, you can get that and my book at chelseabrookcole.com. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm glad that we kind of got to get, to get it done because there was a couple of exterior factors that, you know, uh, delayed it. But I'm really glad to talk yeah. to you again coming on to the show. And, uh, you know, stay in touch. This, this is yeah. Thank you for having me so much. I appreciate it. Um, well, until next time, everybody.